Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Done. Good morning, everybody. So glad you chose to be with us today. What a great day to be together. Um, I so enjoyed hearing from Joe and Mandy last Sunday. Those of you that were here, thank you for being here. It was a wonderful day, uh, just a wonderful day all around. Uh, people saved and added to the kingdom. We got to spend a lot of time together afterwards enjoying some lunch. Uh, that was fun getting to know so many of you. It was a record day for us in a number of different ways, attendance and otherwise. And so we're just thankful for, for all of your being here and not just for an event. You came together ready to learn and to worship and to grow. And so uh, just so thankful for that. We're going to continue our teaching series. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just some easy questions to see if we're at least establish a baseline this morning. Where, geographically speaking, did this sermon take place? Who said it? Yes, you got it. You got it. The Mount, right? It says it right up there. Now, this answer is not on the screen. Who was the speaker who delivered the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus. Okay, we're getting a little bit. If it's a New Testament question and it's a who question, guess Paul or Jesus. The odds are pretty high that you're going to be right. Um, there are how many Gospels in the Bible? Four. Matthew, right? Luke, John. Okay. All of them tell the, all of them give a history a historical account of the life of Jesus, not the whole life, but selected portions of it. Only one of the four Gospels contains the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. This answer is on the screen. Which of the four? You got it. Okay, you are sharp. You are on it today. You are the 9 a.m. crowd, not as sharp as you today. Okay, so if they're listening, listen, 11 a.m. was really with me today. You got it. So um, now these are a little harder. How many verses? And now, how... The original manuscripts don't have verse numbers. We added those later on, so it's easy to find things. But in our Bible, do you remember I told you this a couple times? How many verses in our Bible is the Sermon on the Mount? How many verses long? Very, yeah, 110, 111, depending on which version you have. Yeah, about 110, 111 verses. And it's really, I can't overstate its importance. It's perhaps the most important sermon ever delivered. I could argue that it was. Um, because it's Jesus answering some very basic questions, but these are life and death questions. These are questions that even to this day, if you ask around people inside of Christianity or people outside of Christianity, unfortunately, you'll still find a variety of answers for things that we should agree on because Jesus made it pretty clear. I don't want to say I would say he made it simple, but not easy. Something can be simple, but not easy, right? Um, he made it simple, but not easy. Here's what he dealt with. What is real Christianity? Who's a real Christian? Who thinks they're a Christian, but they're really not? And who is definitely not a Christian? Deals with all those things. What should a Christian do? What is a Christian like? What are, what are Christians supposed to be about? That's the whole point of this sermon. He spends 111 verses differentiating between people who are citizens of his kingdom, what they're like, how they live, how they think about themselves and others, 
and people who are outside of his kingdom. And he shows how they're the polar opposite. And his point is that when you enter Jesus's kingdom, that's one way of understanding what it's like to become a Christian. We enter his kingdom. It has boundaries around it. It has one gate. If you go to Israel today, it has lots of gates. If you're going to travel uh, to Washington, D.C., there's more than one way that you can get there. There's lots of gates. All those different roads lead to capital. God's kingdom does have boundaries and borders, and it has one gate, one way in. It's not a big, huge gate. It's a small gate. It's a narrow gate, and the gate is not a what. The gate is a who, and it's Jesus. There's one way into God's kingdom. It is the way. The truth, the life. No one gets into his kingdom. No one comes to the Father except by Jesus, through Jesus, and in Jesus. He makes that very, very clear. Outside of his kingdom, write your own ticket. It's broad. It's wide. You can be whatever you want, do whatever you want, emulate whoever you want or nobody. Make your own way or follow somebody else. That's outside his kingdom. Jesus did not want us to go through life confused or uncertain about what kingdom we're a citizen of. He wants it to be clear. He doesn't want you to have to spend the rest of your life chasing down an answer to the question, am I really in Christ? Am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Do I really belong in God's kingdom? He wants you to know. And so a huge part of this sermon is him describing, at the end of the day, entering his kingdom, becoming a Christian, what it really means, it means a whole new and different way of living. It's a whole different culture. A different way of living. That's the opposite of the way that the world lives. And the other thing that's different about it is that it's a kingdom that involves a different way of living that starts inside of you. It's a change that happens internally. And those internal changes in how you think, how you feel, how you relate, and what you know, and what you understand. It's those changes inside of you that radiate out through your behaviors and actions. That is the opposite of the way that the world works and the world teaches. In fact, the world can act out all of these, or most of these beatitudes. They can act them out. They can mimic them. You can make yourself do things that are peaceful. You can make yourself do merciful things. Jesus says the difference about my kingdom is that it's not something you act out. It's something that you are internally. That is the characteristics of a new person who lives in you. And it's that tree that produces the good fruit that radiates out of you. Rather than you trying to say, I'm going to just grit my teeth really hard and do merciful things even though I don't want to. It's the want to that changes. And that's an internal thing. One of the Beatitudes is, is, tells us, we studied this already, part of the process of Christ-likeness is that you develop a hunger and a thirst that wasn't there before. There's a new somebody who lives inside of you after you get saved and he stirs up a new appetite and he helps suppress an old one. He was like the new diet pill before that you ever you know, had all these new ones going around. And one of the appetites he stirs up inside of us is a desire to do right and be right by God's standards. And that's not an appetite we really have in our flesh. Our flesh wants to do right and be right by our standards. And so a new one grows up in there. 
So if you'd like to get access on all of the different sources that I looked at for today or see the notes in their entirety, because I won't cover everything today, you can scan the QR code, download it to your device, and you can have them. But we're going to look at four, four, the final four Beatitudes today. And here's what's going to happen if you dial into this, if you really think about this for the next few minutes, if you don't just sit and take in, but you engage in this. One of two things will happen inside of you this morning. These beatitudes, when we study through them, they will do one of two things. They will either comfort us or they'll convict us. Now, why? Why is that? Why one of those two reactions, one of those two experiences? Well, the beatitudes are nine statements that Jesus makes. There's over 30 beatitudes in the Bible. Jesus gives us nine here. His point of giving us these nine, I believe, is to show us the entire spiritual journey represented in nine statements and how we can know we're involved in this journey of Christ-likeness. There's a, there's a beginning to them. I wouldn't say there's an end, but there's a process to them. And Jesus says, when you experience these attitudes, when you recognize these inner awarenesses or relationships or you gain certain knowledge and information that you believe that you didn't have before, then you're blessed, supremely happy, supremely blissful because there's a promise attached to every one of these attitudes. If you recognize those today, you'll be comforted because here's what you'll say, uh, you know, using a previous one for an example, when we talk about a blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled if you're a Christian and you have a relationship with God through Jesus and we talk through that about a new appetite coming up inside of you, an appetite to be right by God, to do right, to avoid sin, to shun sin and do right and be right, two things are going to happen if you know Jesus. Number one, you're going to say, I recognize in me an appetite to do that. I want to do right. I want to be right. I hate Sin, I don't like doing sin. I don't like how sin feels. I don't like the fact that I wrestle with it. And there's a part of me that gets a little bit troubled in thinking about this because it says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I do. But if I'm real honest, I also recognize there's still an old appetite in me at times. And there's a part of me that's very real. I have imagination that's terrible and capable of terrible things. There's stuff that flashes through my mind at times that I'm ashamed to even go in there. The things I think about hurting people and murders and affairs and cheating. And there's things that flash through my mind. Lust and wanting things that aren't mine that I covet and pride and bitterness. And I, there's things that, and I recognize them in my mind. And, I, and, I, and I, on the one hand, I, I see this. I see, I see a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. But I also see at the same time a hunger and a thirst for unrighteousness. Jesus says, you're blessed. What do you, what do you mean? He says, be, comfort, be comforted. Because the promise is, you recognize that you're in process, but you're not all the way there yet. And how can you recognize you're in process if you can't see both things working at the same time? Jesus says, be comforted and be encouraged because, because as we read later in the New Testament, he who began a good work in you, is faithful to complete it. If there's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in you, where did that come from? It didn't come from your flesh. Where did that come from? It comes from Jesus himself. In other words, you know a tree by its fruit. 
And if you recognize you're starting to think and live and act with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, you won't be satisfied until you're growing and maturing in that. It's proof. If you reverse engineer it, it's like, well, I'm holding that apple here in my hand. That apple could only come from an apple tree, and that apple tree could only come from an apple seed, and I can't produce apple seeds. That's a fruit of God's Spirit. That only comes from his spirit. And if I'm experiencing that, that must mean his spirit lives in me. And it lives in me. And if his spirit lives in me, I'm blessed because I'm saved. I just gave you a, a key to the kingdom right there. I hope you grabbed it. This is why you can read these Beatitudes and be comforted even by seeing your own imperfections. Because a lot of us will use these Beatitudes as standards. And you'll read, blessed are you're the poor in spirit, you know, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You say, okay, until I am 100% aware of my absolute spiritual poverty, I fall short of that standard. Therefore, I must not be a citizen of his kingdom. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And you say, oh, there's times that I'm just not merciful. Someone does me wrong, and I don't act in mercy. I act in revenge. I act in getting even. I act in justice-seeking. I want, I, you know, I want bad. I, pray, I don't pray for them to get better. I pray for them to get got. You know, like, I don't, I don't want that. And, oh, I must fall short. And Jesus says, that's the wrong way to read these. What he says is, if you recognize inside of you a desire to be merciful that you didn't have before, that is the evidence of a new tree growing in you. And the only way it starts growing is on this side of salvation. So be encouraged because God has started a good work in you. And it's not done yet. But if you grab onto the promise, you can look forward to a day. And guess what? You won't have to fight the flesh anymore because God will remove that part of you from you forever. And so that's why the Beatitudes are so beautiful. They describe the entire Christian journey from recognizing that I'm completely sinful to grieving over the fact that I know I'm sinful. I'm not, I am broken and flawed and I'm not right with God. And I'm not okay that I'm not right with God. I need to come to God in meekness and humility to receive forgiveness for my sins. And that helps me see myself and others in a more healthy light. And then the spirit comes and lives inside of me. And it, and it starts in me a new appetite that I didn't have before for hunger and righteousness. And as I start chasing after these things, I see new stuff coming out of my life. I see mercy coming out. I start recognizing a desire for purity in my heart. Even though there's impurity in my heart, I recognize a desire to be pure in my heart that wasn't there before. I see myself being drawn to being willing to be active and making peace with God, myself, and with others. And inevitably, not everybody's going to receive this change in my life and it could end in having some type of persecution as my value system and the world's value system are totally incompatible. And at times, we're going to bump up against one another. If you look at the Beatitudes and their whole spectrum, they describe the Christian journey. And Jesus says, if you recognize activity and experiences in these be encouraged because you're a real Christian. If these things are all foreign to you, you won't be comforted. You'll be convicted. Because you say, you know what? These things don't bubble up inside of me. Those aren't the characteristics of my heart. Those aren't the desires of my heart. 
Yes, I can see maybe some behavior in my life that at times looks like mercy and looks like peace and looks like, looks like some of these other things. But if I'm honest, there are things that I'm doing in my behaviors that are external, but they haven't changed my heart. They're right actions, but they haven't dealt with the sinful me. And you see, that's what they taught back in Jesus' day. That's what the Pharisees said. The Pharisees didn't deal with your desires. They didn't deal with your heart. They didn't deal with your thinking. The law didn't deal with those things. All the law did was regulate your behaviors. And all the law could do was show you that you're broken. That's all it could do. It couldn't fix you. So it was good, but it wasn't the best. The best was the new covenant, which says, you're wrong, but there's a solution in Jesus. That's the better news. You're no longer dependent upon the law. You can come to Christ and he can change you. So let's look at these, uh, these last four Beatitudes today. For each one, we're going to say, what does it mean to be this Beatitude? And then why are you blessed if you experience these characteristics in your life? Here they are. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now that's important. Jesus is not saying blessed are the pure of heart. That's a different person he's talking about. The pure of heart are perfect. There's no impurities in their heart whatsoever. This is the condition of, you know, the unfallen man or the totally redeemed person in heaven. This is the condition of the angels. That's, that's pure of heart. Jesus saying our blessed are the pure in heart. There's purity in their heart along with other things. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's a big difference between a peacemaker and a peace lover. Peacemakers love peace too, but not every peace lover is a peacemaker. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, we'll figure out if you're with me or not. All right. For they will be called children of God, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's our four. I know that last one sounds like two, but I bring them together because they're both talking, pronouncing a blessedness on people who are persecuted. Do you remember what it means to be blessed in Jesus' words? It means supremely what? Supremely blissful. Supremely happy. A type of bliss and happiness and privilege that is above anything you could experience on this earth. And the reason these were so shocking is because Jesus said, let me draw a picture of the people that I call blessed. And he would draw a picture of someone who was hungry, someone who was thirsty, someone who was in poverty, someone who was meek, someone who was persecuted and isolated. And you say, pastor, that's not the picture of someone that I would call blessed. If I drew a picture of someone who was blessed, they would be wealthy, they would be well-fed, they would be laughing, they would be popular. And Jesus says, no, I just esteem things by a different value system than the world does. Also, you have to understand Jesus wasn't talking about physical poverty, physical grief, physical isolation, because that would turn this whole thing into a social gospel, and that's not what it is. He's talking about spiritual poverty, spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst, spiritual meekness, those changes inside that radiate out in the way that they live. First beatitude we're going to look at today is merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to be merciful? I'll give you a working definition. I'll explain it. First part, you probably understand. The second part might be a shift for you. To be merciful means to act. Where does every action begin? It begins as a what? It begins as a thought. That's like 95% of understanding the rest of the New Testament. 
if we want our actions to change, work, I'm not trying to teach you new age. I'm trying to teach you Bible. This is old age. This is ancient stuff. So if you want your actions to really change permanently, what has to change first? Your thoughts. Now, let's go one level deeper. If I want my thoughts to change, something in my heart, that part of me that's invisible, my will, my emotions, my desires, something there has to change. Now, let me ask a controversial question. And I'll take you off the hot seat. I'm not going to ask you what you think. I ask you what you think the Bible teaches. Does the Bible teach that our heart in and of itself, by itself, is either good or evil? It's sinful. That's not popular today. At all. Our heart is, the Bible uses words like deceitful. It's selfish. It looks out for you. At all costs. So if you have a sinful heart as your oil filter. And it's filling your mind with broken, selfish, deceitful. I'm right. I'm what's most important. I can do whatever I want. I do what's... How are you going to act? You're going to act out of all of that. If you want lasting change in the way that you believe. It's not just about changing your actions. Because that's what the Pharisees said. Cover up your heart by just willing yourself to do actions that look good. But if they're still coming from a bad tree and a bad seed, they're going to be bad fruit. If you really wanted to get to root of all this, what do we really need? We need a, we need a heart change. You need a different heart beating inside of you. You need different thoughts filling your mind and being released out into your actions. That's holistic Redemption is what that looks like. Merciful, in Jesus' estimation, is not just something you feel and never do. It's something you feel in your heart and you do with your hand. To act with compassion, kindness, and tenderness. Does that sound good to you so far? Okay, let's forget about you for a second. Would you like to live in a neighborhood where everybody in your neighborhood was passionately committed to treating you with compassion, kindness, and tenderness? Everybody said... Of course you do, unless you're just a sicko. Nobody in their right mind says, I would prefer to be in a neighborhood where everybody is hostile, hurtful, and just plain miserable all the time. We would like to be around people who treat us with compassion, kindness, and tenderness. Merciful means I act with compassion, kindness, and tenderness towards others. You're with me so far. Now's the part where it gets unnatural. Especially those who are hostile and hurtful and miserable. Let's not be too holy today. I would suggest that is a category of person that you find very difficult to muster up some merciful feelings towards. And I would also suggest that if you thought back on your life and, and if without doing this Bible study, I just asked you off the top of your head, give me an example of a time you acted mercifully towards somebody. You would say, well, I helped these starving children in this country. Are they? In one hand, maybe, yes. But there's also a time when we say, my mercy was extended to someone who I feel deserved it. Life gave him a bad shake and I was trying to, to even things out. And we should be involved in that. 
where, where, where people are suffering unjustly and harm. Our hearts should be moved by that. 100%, I would call that compassion for sure. I would call that kindness for sure and tenderness for sure. But yet mercy is a little bit more narrow in what it means. It means kindness, compassion, tenderness towards people who do not deserve it at all. They deserve the opposite. Now, mercy is usually linked together with one or two other words in the Bible. We usually hear the phrase blank and mercy. Do you know what the first blank usually is? Grace. Haven't you heard those two words used together before? And they are similar. They're not interchangeable, though. There's a little bit of a difference between grace and mercy. And In fact, in Paul's letters, and Dr. Joe brought this out last week, you get grace and mercy and peace, which interestingly is another one of our Beatitudes. Let me help you understand the difference between grace and mercy. Here's what's the same. They both involved somebody who doesn't deserve getting it and getting better than what they actually deserve. Grace means undeserved favor for the guilty. Grace, guilty. Grace, guilty. Mercy means undeserved kindness, compassion, tenderness for the miserable. Mercy, Miserable, mercy, miserable. So you see a little bit of a a difference. They're similar, and I'm not that concerned that you totally separate them this morning and be able to, because they work together. They work as a team. Nor am I concerned if you have to identify, is this a feeling of grace or mercy? Listen, if you feel it and it's from the Holy Spirit, just, I don't need you to title it, just minister to somebody in that. But I want you to know that this kind of mercy is unnatural. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. So my question is, How do you get that kind of merciful? How do you grow in to that person? Because let me tell you, it is not natural to show kindness to people who are hostile. And without pointing fingers to anybody in this room, do you at least know somebody who's just hostile? Yeah, yeah, I felt that passion. Came from one of our middle school teachers. She knows. But you just know they are hostile. They would, if you gave them a choice between being happy or grumpy, they're going to pick grumpy. They, their worst fear is having nothing to complain about. You can tell by their face, by their walk, by their general disposition, by their resting face, not to mess with them. It sends every signal that I'm already angry at everybody for everything, and if you ask me, I'll tell you. You know somebody like this. And here's, I'm going to be very bold. I'm going to guess you don't like them. Love is commanded, like is an option, right? They're not likable. I'll just say, hostile people by definition are not likable and proud of it. They're difficult and proud of it. That's just how I am. I'm just opinionated. I just... Tell it like it is. No, you just tell it like you think it is. Might not be how it is. They're just hostile. What about hurtful? Do you know people who are just unashamedly hurtful? Intentionally hurtful. I'm not talking about the person who accidentally hurts you or slips on a banana peel or this is not a character. I'm talking about people who Know that they're hurting people and actually use it as a choice. That's diabolical and devious. They use it as a way to manipulate other people and impose their will. That's who this is talking about. 
This is talking about someone who, I'll use theological terms, who is a bold, unapologetic sinner with no remorse, with no awareness of their own sin. Do not even think that what they're doing is wrong, but that it's advantageous to the way that they live. This kind of a person. The person that's not likable, and if they, if they do you wrong, they're almost, in your own heart, unforgivable. Or just generally plain miserable. What does that person deserve? Well, some of you could write several pages on this because you've thought about it. You've prayed about it. Lord, listen, this person that's just being hurtful to me, I have a very long specific request for them. First off, when they're driving today, and you just, you go. You fantasize about what you'd say to them if you got a chance. Sometimes you do it in the car by yourself with nobody in there. This is what I would say if I got the chance and I could just do them. And all those things are natural. That is normal. That's what the world says. The world says it is wise to get revenge when someone does wrong. Because we have it built into us. We want justice. People who do wrong should pay for it. And we need laws to make sure that whatever we say is wrong, if people who do wrong, they get paid for it to deter them from doing bad and to reward the good people from that. And we get all excited about that for everybody else but us. Human heart says justice is a good thing for everybody else. Justice means getting exactly what I deserve. Now, question for you. How does God feel about justice? Thumbs up or thumbs down? He's up on that. God is a God of justice. That should make us all a little bit wrenched in our stomach. Because he's about that for me. God has standards and law. I have broken them repeatedly. Every offense, every infraction, every time I've broken one of God's laws by doing things my way, not his way, involves a death sentence. I must pay with my life for what I've done. Now, if I only ever sinned once, I might be able to make a one-for-one substitution. Unfortunately, I, I, I can't do that. And even my life itself wouldn't be a suitable sacrifice because my life isn't perfect. My blemished life can't pay the penalty for my blemishes. Only a blemishless sacrifice can pay it off. So even my own sin, I've disqualified my own ability to pay for it. And yet God is a God of justice. This means that for God to be a just judge, he can't sweep my sins under the rug. You don't want to live in a justice system where your judges are corrupt and can be bought off and sweep things under the rug based on who you are or what lawyer you have, right? You might live in that system now, but we won't be political today. But even our own justice system isn't perfect. We do the best we can, but it's human beings sitting in these seats. God is absolutely a God of justice. Our sins are our sins. They are facts. They are violations of his law. They must be punished or else we say God is corrupt. He's not a just judge. He does not honor his own system. But let me ask you a question. The opposite of getting what you deserve is getting better than you deserve. And what do we call that? Grace. Grace is not getting what I deserve. It's getting an upgrade. Well, let me ask you, thumbs up or thumbs down, how does God feel about grace? Yeah. I hope you know this much. Like, God is 
a big fan of grace. He is gracious. Here's our problem now. God is a God of justice and a God of grace. You see how this could be a real problem? Because which is he then? Is he about making sure everybody gets what they deserve? Or is he about making grace available? The answer is yes. And there was only one solution to what we think is a problem. And it's called the cross. On the cross, we see the God of justice. Because God says, on the cross, I'm going to pile up all the the rap sheets forever. I'm going to take all the sins, all the penalties, past, present, future. I'm going to amass them all. I'm going to bring them before the court. All those charges. All of them have a guilty verdict. All of them demand a penalty. All of them require payment. Require punishment. All of them. We can't skip anyone. Into the courtroom comes an innocent man. Jesus Christ. And Jesus steps in and says, I will be a substitute. In order that you can be just God, I want you to take, if you will allow this, take every stacked up penalty for every sin forever, put it on my resume, Tally the punishment and put all that punishment on me and don't hold it back. And in exchange, if you'll receive that payment, credit that payment to all of the guilty. And because we have a resurrection, we know God accepted that payment. Because Jesus defeated both sin and death. So on the cross... You have God's justice fully satisfied. Your sins and my sins have not gone unpunished. Every sin I've ever committed and every sin I ever will commit deserves punishment and that punishment has already been given out to Jesus. So God can give me what I don't deserve. Righteousness, forgiveness, restoration, He gives me all the benefits package of perfection with none of the performance. He gives me the whole benefits package of new life without the resume. And on the cross, you see both God's justice and his grace fully satisfied. So how could any person possibly turn around then and live a life of mercy towards other people who are doing to us and doing to others what we've done to God? There's only one way, and that is through Jesus. Jesus has to unite himself with you and with me. Jesus has to come live in us through the Holy Spirit so that Jesus, the true vine and the true branches can produce in us a mercy that comes from inside of us that has new desires. That we can't produce for ourselves. And Jesus says, if you recognize in you a fruit, a branch, a vine of mercy growing up, where you have new compassion, kindness, and tenderness for somebody where previously there was none, that is evidence that you're in a saving relationship with your Father. But, Pastor, I am not perfect in this area. I'm not perfect. But I can be honest, when I'm faced with 
these kinds of people. I do recognize inside of me a part at times. In fact, I was praying with somebody from this church not that long ago in that office right over there. We're praying over a situation where somebody he is very close to and cares about very much is just being, it's one of the most heinous acts of evil I've ever seen firsthand. I have never seen a human being put into motion what this perpetrator is doing in this situation we're playing over. Somebody outside is wreaking a type of evil on this family that if I told you, you probably wouldn't believe me. It's that bad. And everything within me in that moment is welling up for, obviously we're praying protection over the innocent and over the wronged and that God would somehow bring right out of all of this. And it's now in the justice system. It's just a big mess. I see no hope for it in the natural Our only hope is in the spiritual of this thing being righted. But there was a part of our heart in that moment that felt foreign. That said, we also need to pray for this perpetrator. This evil, diabolical, demonically motivated liar. We need to pray for his soul. And I will tell you, nothing in me naturally felt that way. Because when I hear about this, this is the person I want the key to be locked up, throw the book at them and justice. And sometimes that's an instrument God uses and it is what it is. But I, was praying, I wasn't praying for this person to go innocent. I was praying for this person to see how lost that they are spiritually. The only reason that feeling was even in there, and it had competition from that other part of me that's still not regenerated, that sinful part of me that until my last breath I will have to fight. And I hate that it's in there. And I want to resist it, and I don't want to listen to him, but it's in there, and I have to fight it, and it drains me sometimes, and it even makes me wonder if I'm saved sometimes I see its activity. But I read this verse, and I say, if I can recognize inside of me a new appetite or a desire or a willingness to have merciful feelings that lead to merciful actions towards people who are hurtful, hostile, and miserable, then I can take comfort from this passage, not because I'm perfect, but because there's been a good work started in me. And that means it's going to be complete. It can't be finished until it's started and the work is started. I can't tell if this is getting through or not, so let me continue on. I need a book on how to decipher. I've been here almost 11 years now. I need a book on how to figure out, because you look for we're not paying attention and we want to go eat, and you look for I'm deep in thought and I agree with everything you say. It's exactly the same. So I never know as a teacher what to do. All I know that works is as we keep going. Why are the merciful blessed? Simple. You reap what you sow. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. You reap what you sow. If you reap, let me say it this way. This is the better way to say it. Because you have reaped mercy, you will sow mercy. Because one way you read this could lead you to thinking, I have to earn mercy from God. So before he'll be merciful to me, I need to go show mercy to someone who's done me wrong. Then God will observe that, give me a gold star, and then give me some mercy. That is called a gospel of works, which means you do the right thing and then God rewards you. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying the only way you can show this kind of mercy is if you've already received it. And the only way you could have received it is by genuine forgiveness from Christ. And so you are blessed if you can show this mercy because it's proof you've received it. And he says that later on in the sermon. If you forgive other people of their sins against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you don't or you can't or you won't forgive other people of their sins, your heavenly father can't forgive you. It doesn't mean that forgiveness is the cause of our forgiveness. It's the occasion our forgiveness because you've experienced it for yourself so if you can even see this characteristic this foreign characteristic operating in your life in your thoughts and your desires in your leanings you can rejoice because it's the proof that you've received a different kind of forgiveness that allows you to live out a certain type of meekness what kind of person does this a meek person can forgive someone who's done them wrong a meek person says listen at the end of the day i don't have to fight for my own name and my own rights I can lower them in order to extend mercy and peace to other people. Now, if you cross Jesus, we're going to tango. But only a meek person can come to that conclusion. Let's move on to the next beatitude. What does it mean to be pure in heart? The better translation of the word pure, if you go back to the original language, you're going to find two words. The Greek word for pure here is usually translated into sincere and upright. So Jesus is talking about authenticity, sincereness, genuineness. To have a sincere inner desire to live for God's glory, even though you recognize I am not perfect, I still have sinful self living inside of me. That's who Jesus is describing here. He says, blessed are those of you who recognize there's purity in your heart, even though your heart is not totally made of purity. I have to try and make that make sense, the differentiation. Saying pure of heart means heart 100% pure. Our hearts, even after we're saved, are not 100% pure. Jesus's is. And Jesus' heart now lives in us through his spirit. And when we try to enter through the narrow gate, God will view the Jesus in us, not the us. Because we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us when we're saved. So it doesn't mean that your heart all of a sudden is 100% pure. I don't know if some of you are old enough to remember the old ivory bar soap commercials. Some of you do. Man, I'm getting into that category of the congregation now. Here we go. Ivory used to, and they don't advertise themselves this way anymore because our skeptical society today would never accept this. They advertise, you remember, they were 99.9% pure soap. And what they're drawing our attention to today is what? You're basically telling me there's part of that soap that's not pure. Why would I want to rub that all over me? There's a little part in there that's not pure. Well, it's just a little bit of manure, just a little bit of poison we mix in there. And you're just like, that's not okay. I'm not rubbing that on my face. Why would you tell me that? I'd rather just live in ignorance. Let it be 50% pure, but don't tell me. Tell me it smells good. Or it's made out of some type of thing you had to get off of a mountain cap in Tibet and smuggle over here, and it's got special benefits in an infomercial. Like, tell me that. But don't tell me these other things. Ivory is telling you that there's purity in the soap. They're also telling you there's impurity in the soap. Our hearts are not 100% pure. What Jesus is saying, when you realize that, you're blessed. And you're saying, but pastor, when I realize that my inner desires are not pure, that's not pleasant. I don't feel blissful. I don't feel happy. 
if you're a Christian, you never feel happy about that. Some of us read this verse and say, oh, the, the blessed life, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is only pure in their heart. And pastor, if I'm honest and I'm transparent and I agree with God's all-seeing eye, my heart is not a pure place. I recognize it wants things it shouldn't want. It fantasizes about things. It craves things. It turns things over. And I act out of it sometimes, pastor. I give in. Therefore, I must conclude, I can't claim this blessing as mine. That's a misreading of this statement. Jesus saying, blessed are you when you recognize a new purity that's inside your heart. That it's active. And that purity in your heart has created in you a deep, sincere desire to live for God's glory. Even though you recognize your sinful flesh is present. Here's what that sounds like. God, I own the fact that I am sinful and I am struggling in my thought life right now. I admit it to you, I hate it, I resist it, but I don't deny that it's there. It is there, and I want, to, I, I want to mute that appetite. I want to suppress that appetite. I need victory over that. I don't want to give into that. I want to live for your glory. I don't like that I even entertain sin. God, I'm embarrassed and ashamed that there's even this fight going on inside of me. Have you ever had a conversation like that with God? None of you, okay then let me be uncomfortably honest with you this morning. There's no way to be comfortably honest with you about this, but let me tell you how a way that I recognized in me what this verse tries to encourage me through. Some of you know, years ago, I started a very small e-commerce business. I sell things online and I ship them. I do it on a day off, evenings, mornings, because we love the Dave Ramsey teaching. And we just said, hey, you know, open up another uh, income stream. We're going to be able to get to some financial goals quicker. And it's been great for helping us in that way. Um, I ship a couple thousand packages a year. And every time that I sell something, part of the equation of the whole enterprise that I look at is I need to make sure it's basic business. I need to make sure that what I'm collecting from the buyer for shipping covers the cost of shipping it. It does not make good business sense to receive less money to pay for a package being shipped than it actually costs. That's not, I can't be in good business if I'm, if I'm collecting $10 for every package that I ship and it costs me $20 to ship it. That's not good business. And so in the software that I use, before that I list an item for sale, I can weigh the item, I can figure out what type of package it should go in. I enter the dimensions, the length, the width, the height, and the weight along with the zip code from where I'm going to be sending it. And then when the end user sees it on the other side and they want to buy it, it will already calculate on them based on where they want it shipped, what their shipping cost will be. 95% of the time this works out well, but there's a couple times where maybe I think a package is going to be smaller than what it is or weigh less than it does until I pack it up, it weighs more. Uh, a couple years ago, I remember being in my basement where I'm getting ready to ship a package. It was uh, the packed package was 17 inches long by 12 inches wide by 10 inches tall. It weighed 15 pounds. I think it said it was going to be, uh, that the cost was, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was going to be uh, like $25.44 to ship this thing. Well, when I entered in the calculations before I printed the shipping label, I, I had a chance to view what I thought it was going to be before that I weighed it. And it weighed a little, it weighed the same, but it was, the package was a little bit bigger than I initially predicted. And when I ended it in there, it, 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 it calculated it out that it was going to be like $32 to ship it. 
I was like, they only paid me $25.44, $32 to ship it. I'm going to lose $7 on this. I measured it again just to see if I mismeasured. No. I, could I get it in a smaller box? No. Did it weigh any less? I weighed it again. No. Weighed it three times? No. Still the same thing. Well, then I started playing around. Well, if I change the 17 to a 16 and the 12 to an 11, it changed it from costing $25 to costing $17. I was like, the Lord has shown up again. If I just pretend that this package is two inches less than what it actually is, I not only can cover the cost, I can make $8 profit. And there came this moment in this where I was like, what are you doing? What kind of a lousy person are you? You're in your basement plotting and scheming how to defraud the post office. For $7, a net switch of $15. And there's this little part of me that says, but they'll never know and they won't measure it. And think of the times that you probably sent one that they made out on the other end and they're not going to double check and measure it. They don't really care. It's a big company. They've got lots of money. And you're a Christian. Why wouldn't God want to bless you this way? And I'm like, oh my goodness. What? Stop in there. And I was just confronted with just, selfish greed in my own heart. And I'm thinking, I'm a pastor of a church for crying out loud. And here I am in my basement, recognizing that inside of me there's a part of my saved heart that is fine with lying by two inches to make $7. And I was ashamed and embarrassed. And there's a part of me that was saying, but no one's going to see it. And I'm like, it is too late. I know, I'm hearing God right now. He totally sees this. His all-seeing eye sees what's going on in my heart, and I'm embarrassed and ashamed. I thought my heart was so pure, and yet inside of it, there was this part of me that when an opportunity was put in front of it to just shave a little corner off the edge here to make $7, I was entertaining this. Now, you may not have had that experience, but have you ever had an experience where you were aware that even after you were saved, there's still your flesh inside of you that is broadcasting all the time to do the wrong thing? I recognize that. I recognize inside me there was not one desire, but there was two. There is a desire I've always had to do what seems right to me, and I had built for my, this is how it works. You build for yourself a case to feel better about doing something that you think is wrong, and you build yourself enough of a case to start feeling that it's right. It's called self-justification. Well, they'll never know, they'll never know, and I probably overpaid on some, and at the end of the day, this and that and the other thing, and I don't, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's deceitful and it's greedy. But I saw a second appetite in there too that says this is wrong. I shouldn't do this. This isn't right by God's standards. I saw inside of me two appetites. An old proverb says two wolves. One has always been in there. My flesh. My heart my sinful self, and it wants to do right by its own standards. It looks out for me. It's always finding a way to feel good about what I do by my own standards. But there was another appetite in me that caused a conflict. And it caused me to feel embarrassed, convicted, and ashamed. And ultimately, I yielded to that one. And I said, I'm just going to pay, I'm going to lose $3. I'm going to lose $3.44 on this one. 
because my walk with the Lord is not worth the anguish of the seven dollars. It's not worth it to me. When you're filling out your taxes or when you have an opportunity to skate on this or skate on that or cut corners here or there. Is it ever worth the payoff? It's not. And Jesus says, if you recognize that dichotomy inside of you, that there is a pureness in your heart, but that your heart is not altogether pure, you are blessed. And I'm saying, Lord, this doesn't feel very blissful right now. He's saying, son, you would not have any tension inside of you if I wasn't in there. And the fact that I am in there means that I've started a good work and I'm going to finish it. Because blessed are those who are pure in heart for they will see God. I wonder if you've ever had that experience. Let it bring you comfort today. Till your dying breath, you'll have to fight that old sinful self. But that old sinful self is defeated. There's a new life living in you. And that is the Holy Spirit. Paul recognized that when he wrote Romans 7. He says, I look inside of me and I see two kinds of appetites in here. How can I possibly be saved? Who's going to deliver me from this? Thanks God through Jesus. He recognized the blessing of this. I will say in that moment, I heard and I felt Jesus. I saw him in a way I had never seen before. I got to keep moving on. Why are you blessed? It introduces us to a new way of seeing Jesus for, our, for ourselves now and forever. Even in that moment, in the basement, by the computer screen. Now, of course, I selected a story where I listened to Jesus and I did right. I could give you stories of times where there is that tension and I gave in the other way. I don't feel any better about those things. But you know, it just started this process of when I was aware of that, oh, I'm so spiritually bankrupt. I need to come to God for mercy. I need his forgiveness. I want a new appetite for hunger and righteousness to wake up inside me so I live out of that hunger for righteousness and I live a merciful life and a peacemaking life and I'm willing to embrace persecution. I'm not a chameleon. All the different attitudes that come along with being a Christian. Jesus says, if you recognize those things in your life, that's a true Christian. He didn't say, you know, you'll know you're a Christian by blessed are the church attenders. Blessed are the servants. Blessed are the big givers. Blessed he said, blessed are the people who recognize there's a purity in your heart that's fighting against an impurity in your heart. Because where did that appetite for purity come from? It happened at salvation. <laughs> blessed are you because I'll finish that. You'll see me. You'll hear me both now and forever in ways that outsiders will never hear me. Next beatitude. I got to hurry to close. What's it mean to be a peacemaker? Not a pacemaker, peacemaker. Not a peace lover. Peacemakers are peace lovers. Not all peace lovers are peacemakers. Because here's your definition. It doesn't sound like a pacifist. It means to engage in spiritual warfare. People who get involved in any kind of warfare are by definition not pacifists. It doesn't mean that you crave conflict. Because some of you are like, oh, uh, you know, you want war and conflict. I'm your person, pastor. Whenever you get into church discipline, I volunteer to be involved. I'm like, I don't want the person that's cracking their knuckles and loosening up before we sit down in a tense situation with a member. That's not what it means. Being a peacemaker means to engage in spiritual warfare against the opponents of peace, against all things which bring chaos and separation between God and people. Here's what a peace lover as opposed to a peacemaker is, and I've realized my personality is I am a peace lover. 
Now, I know people who are not content unless there's chaos somewhere. If they get bored, they'll go start trouble. Things are too peaceful today. I need to go poke the bear somewhere so we can get a little lively action around here. And I'm like, just let the dog sleep. Like, if you know that this is a person's, some of you are button pushers for your own entertainment. Others of you are the opposite of that. Like, you are button avoiders. Like, you don't, I'm a peace lover. Here's the problem with that. I recognize that if I get hurt by somebody and I'm unable to overcome it and just extend grace that it really is a situation that should be addressed, I will not go address it, but I'll make myself feel good. I'm just taking the high road and trying to keep things peaceful. Here's the truth. It just looks peaceful, but it is not because my heart has changed. I get bitter. I keep records. I rehearse things in my mind. I probably avoid people. I don't, you know, I go out of my way to not have to approach that. That's not peace. That's artificial harmony. That's, that's division masquerading as harmony. That's not peacemaking what Jesus says. That's not the way he describes it because that's not how our father acted towards us. God recognized things weren't right between us and he didn't say, well, you know what? I'm just going to go on with eternity and let them figure it out. He said, I'm going to let this peace cost me something. I'm going to inconvenience myself to try and bring these two parties back together again. Peace loving says, I will sweep my sins under the rug. I know I did them wrong, but if I go apologize to them, they might not accept it and it could get bigger. I'm just going to, in my own heart, tell God I'm sorry, but never tell them because that will make peace. No, that's peace loving, not necessarily peace making. Someone's done me wrong, but I'm just not confident enough to go to them and make things right. And so, you know, I know I can't totally let it go or be great. I'm just not going to bring it up. Peace loving just says, I'll sweep anything under the rug rather than confronting it to keep the appearance of peace. And we think that that's noble, but it's just, it, a lot of times that's just artificial harmony. And it creates, what it does is it doesn't sweep things under the rug and they disappear. When you sweep things under the rug, you get a pile. And now you have a button. And how much energy do you spend avoiding those unresolved issues in life? The things you can't bring up at Thanksgiving. The things you can talk to others about but never talk to people to. How much energy? Do you know how the longer you live in life, if you live with unresolved stuff, that's complicated. It takes a lot of energy to avoid setting off all those bombs. Jesus says, I'm a peacemaker. My kids are peacemakers. They don't sit on the sidelines and let matters in life that interrupt our peace with God and our peace with each other and our peace. We don't let those things get swept on the rug. We actively fight spiritually. We don't fight people. We fight the spiritual forces which are the enemy of peace. And we get actively engaged in those kinds of things. And it looks like when someone's done you wrong, for their sake and for your sake, you go to them privately at the right time, alone, you show them the fault and you look to find truth. All of those steps are important. The alone part, that means you don't go to Instagram and Facebook and social media first. You don't go to all your friends to build a coalition first. You may need to go to someone for counsel, but let it be someone who's trustworthy, who isn't just going to take your side, but give you good counsel. But if you find you can't forgive them, 
without talking to them, or that it would be inappropriate. Maybe they've really, they've really done wrong. And they're going to go do this again if someone doesn't come along and say, well, I don't really want to because it makes me feel, well, that's selfish. Love says, yeah, it's going to make me feel bad, but I need to go do this. It's going to make me uncomfortable. But I, love makes us do uncomfortable things. Selfishness says, I'm not going to let them know because it's going to make me feel bad. Well, that's a selfish way to live your life. We've got to grow in those things. And who gets excited about that? Usually after I preach these messages, I get 9,000 emails. Pastors, two years ago, you saw me out in the hallway and you didn't say hi. And I've been mad at, okay, we'll just pile it on this week. You know, I'm sorry <laughs> that happened. You know, what I'm talking about is if you can't extend grace and give someone the benefit of the doubt, and sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. Being a peacemaker says, I go, even though this is going to be uncomfortable for both of us, because true peace costs. True peace costs. Even more so, you know you've hurt somebody and you've yet to go to them and say, I'm sorry. Pastor, what if they don't receive it? What if they reject it? What they... Not my issue or yours. Your issue is to be a peacemaker. These are the fun messages. Everybody's happy, right? Or even more so, there's people in your orbit who are out of alignment with one another. They're out of alignment with God. Sometimes before you take that physical step, you need to do the spiritual warfare first, and that will open up clarity to you as what you can do. There's sometimes more than one approach to this. But at the root of it is really the question is, do you desire to be a peacemaker? Any of us can say, I'm not that by nature. And I've told you, I am not naturally a peacemaker. And to be honest, there's a lot of, I just don't, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to take it to another step. I don't want to risk how it could go. That's selfish. But that's in there because there's a voice in there that's always going to say, take care of yourself. And then there's another voice in there that says, but that's not how your dad is. That's not who I am. And I recognize a desire in me to grow in this. So rather than looking at this and saying, oh, I fail miserably in this part, I say, you know what? I see a little tree growing inside of me with a different appetite and a desire. I thank God because it's going to lead to transformation of my behavior. And what's the blessing of this one? This is a cool one. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be recognized and cared for as their father's child. Literal translation, God says, that's my kid. That's my kid. I was walking my six-year-old and 11-year-old to the bus earlier this week, as I usually do, always do. The six-year-old gets on first and goes to his seat. The 11-year-old comes up next, and his bus driver, Miss Sherry, says, hey, good morning, boys. How are you doing? And Chase, as he always says, my 11-year-old just says, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? How are you doing? And she looked like she had seen a ghost. She goes, I, I'm great. Uh, thank you for asking. He goes, good. And he just goes and sits down. She looks at me. She goes, he is just such a polite boy. Like, that's my kid. That's my guy. I'm, I'm going to own it today. Yep, that's my kid. When I asked him, like, why do you do that? He's like, well, every time that you... Well, that's what you and mom do. That's it. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I didn't even recognize that we do that. And that's kind of embarrassing because I'm like, oh, well, maybe I've been, right? Some things I'm being genuinely interested in. It's just become kind of my conversation continue where they go. But I, I sit up and I say, oh, that's my kid. And as parents, you need some moments like that too. As opposed to ones where like, oh, that number on the screen, that's my kid. <laughs> and I'm sure even as adults, my parents have done that before. Like, hey, that's my kid. And other times, oh, that's my kid. <laughs> 
our Heavenly Father watches our activity in the area of making peace with him and peace with others. And in our wrestlings and in our longings and in our actions, he looks down and he says, that's my kid. You know what, that, what he's saying is, I'm going to take care of them like they're mine. I'm going to share with them. I'm going to recognize them. I'm going to care for them like they're mine. And God takes really good care of his kids, doesn't he? Last one. My favorite one. I'm going to talk persecution before lunch. Let's do it. What does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness? Those two words are important. I'm just about out of time, so I'll just cut to the chase. Sometimes we get persecuted for our unrighteousness. You don't get to claim this promise. Not all persecution, mistreatment, opposition, and rejection is because of your Christ-likeness. Some of it's because you're being a doofus. That's a Greek word. You're getting opposition and pushback and rejection because you're being mean. You're being selfish. You're acting in pride. It's not because you're a Christian. It's because you're being mean. You're putting your two cents in where it doesn't belong. And I see so many times where Christians mislabel persecution as a way to justify their sinful actions. Well, it's, oh, I'm, just, I'm enduring so much persecution. Really? Well, what, what's going... Sometimes it's not persecution. Jesus is talking about when you experience any level of opposition, rejection, or mistreatment because of your Christ-likeness. Now, why does he put this one last? Or at least, why does he put it after the one about being a peacemaker? Here's why. He's anticipating the same scenario I brought up today. What if people refuse your efforts to make peace? Liable to end in some type of persecution. You stepped in and you tried to act righteously. You tried to make peace with someone who wronged you or you wronged or you're trying to, to bring peace with somebody else. You're just interacting with someone who's outside the kingdom and your intention is not conflict, it's harmony. But here's, persecution is the inevitable result of two incompatible value systems. You've got the kingdom's value system and the polar opposite is the world's value system. And anytime you try and force those two into a hand-in-hand relationship, you're going to end up with conflict. It's going to look like persecution. And Jesus recognizes, listen, not everybody is going to receive your efforts to be peaceful with them. It could result in persecution. And I love the fact that Jesus never, ever, ever hides the fine print of salvation. Ever. He does say salvation is free, but he also tells all of his followers, but discipleship is costly. This is both searching and comforting. Because on the one hand, and I have to be careful how I say this because I'm out of time, I have to be economical with this. On the one hand, I, I could say if you're not experiencing any pushback, because of your Christ-likeness, what does that tell us about the kind of life you're living now? It could mean you live pretty much isolated from anybody who doesn't share your value system. You live a very small life with a small circle of people who know who you are and what you're about, and they all align or they agree with it, and there's no pushback. It could be the result of you just not having a lot of interaction with people who are outside the kingdom. 
it could also mean you're kind of a chameleon. That you privately, inwardly hold to the truth of who Jesus is. You hold to the truth of the scripture. But when you anticipate it could invite conflict, opposition, dislikes, arguments, friction, you glaze over it. You cover it. You may not out and out lie about it. You just steer clear of it. Because you're a peace lover. And you're persecution averse. Now I'll be honest. I don't get up in the morning and say, Lord, hear the cry of my heart for more persecution. I've just not had enough. I'm not afraid for my life. I haven't been threatened with sticks or stones. All my bones are in place. Lord, I just could you stir up a mob. I don't go to God and ask him for this. I can tell you that to comparatively minor in comparatively minor ways because of where God's chosen that I live and when I live there, I haven't faced nearly the degree of persecution that anybody in this book has and many Christians are facing right now in our world. I can stand in front of you today protected by the law and preach for now. So, you know, I'm cautious to say, oh, I can give you all these stories of how I was persecuted, but the little times I get a taste of it, it is not easy, and it does not feel blessed. I was going to share a story with you this morning, and I thought about it, but I better not share that one. Uh, not in its detail, but I can tell you, I remember one time about six and a half years ago, I took a real stand on the Bible on a particular very dividing issue as it relates to gender and sexuality. And I stood as best as I understand it on the Bible's explanation of who we are. And I just started with, I embrace that God is the creator. He designs us. He defines us in all areas of our life. And the battle inside of all of us is, do I align with God's definition or do I bring in what I think? And that's a unique struggle to all of us. But I'm convinced that aligning with God's definition for my life and discovering his design is his way, not me telling him who I think I should be or what I think I should do. And I can tell by the pins and needles that maybe I'm on an island on that one, but that's just what I believe the Bible teaches, and I'm going to stand on that. Because it's for, it's, sexuality is this big of that whole conversation. It's the whole human problem. We all want to be who we want to be. If we work hard enough, play hard enough, put our mind to it, we can be anything that we want. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but no, you cannot. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work hard and try. And there's a lot of things you can do by human effort. But when you say, by my own effort, I can come up with whatever design that I want. And if I just work hard enough, I have to get there because that's, what, that's just not how it is. But I can be everything God wants me to be. And what he wants me to be is good and perfect. But I have to embrace and surrender to his design for my life. And some of us, we wrestle over what our sexuality should be or our gender assignment is. Or, and others of us wrestle over our career. Or practically, some of us wrestle, wrestle over morality and fidelity. Some of us wrestle over material things. We all have an idea of how we'd like our life to be. And it's at odds with what God wants for us to be. But I believe he's a creator. He's the designer. And if you design it, you get to define it. That's why you don't name my kids. My wife and I created them. We named them. 
And no one argues with that. When God creates us and he names us, he's divine as we all want to argue. Makes no sense. So I remember taking a stand on that with someone and I got destroyed. I didn't know how deep this person was in certain interest group on social media and I got destroyed because of that. Names and threats and looking back on it, it was just such a small thing. And it didn't make me heroic, but I just remember saying, Lord, this just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. And to be fair, I don't face this normally. I do in much more subtle ways. When, when on the little league team that I coached on Wednesdays always got penalized and out every time my son and I had to leave early to come to Bible study. Well, if he starts the game, he doesn't finish. Anytime he comes up in the lineup and he's not here, you get an out. Okay, well, that is what it is. Now, is that some huge act of righteousness? No. It's just these little things. Because I have a value system that's incompatible with the way that the world thinks. And if I'm building relationships with people outside of God's kingdom, those things are going to come into contact. And I'm either going to back down I'm going to overreact or I'm going to double down and try and live these things out in a way that's honorable and blessable to the Lord. That is, a, that is an aroma that is appealing. See, someone else gets to make the walk this morning. I prophesied about that. That's your kid. So what's the blessing of persecution? It creates opportunities for me to grow in godly character and Christ-likeness like you might not have otherwise. Paul called it this way. When I suffer... It results in fellowship with Jesus. That's a weird statement, man. When I think fellowship, I think Echo Eats. Let's set up the tables, have pizza and subs that you don't have to pay for, and let's just hang out. Fellowship. I'm going to have fellowship with, I'm going to have fellowship on Tuesday playing pinball at a place called Holy Frijoles, which means holy beans in Spanish, I learned. That's as close as I get. $2 tacos. Fellowship. Hang out with some new friends playing games. Paul says, if I want to have real fellowship with Jesus, one of the ways you gain is you suffer with somebody. I don't know if you've ever suffered alongside somebody or someone suffered alongside you. You bond in ways. Paul said, I don't love persecution, but I see it as an avenue to grow in Christ-likeness because he was persecuted more than all of us. The prophets were persecuted more than all of us and they all grew spiritually. We, you know, and, and, I, and I don't look like the testimony of this, but you know, I don't find it painless to go to the gym and work out. It's why I don't. I shopped on Craigslist and put a cheaper gym in the house so that I know that it's there so I don't feel as guilty, but then I look at it and don't use it and feel guiltier. So I don't know where I am in all this. But there's a certain discomfort that comes from physical exercise. It hurts. There's a pain to it. But it builds you and it grows you. So I'm not saying going around inviting persecution. You know, don't paint a bullseye on yourself and go around and just, don't be a masochist. Don't just go around and yes, you know, I don't care. I'm going to put myself out there just to invite persecution. But it is inevitable the deeper you embrace this value system, the more likely you are for that value system to, to beat heads against the way the world thinks. You know, my 11-year-old is experiencing it. He's like, Dad, I just don't want to cuss and swear, and I don't want to be around the inappropriate jokes, and so I'm losing almost all my friends. 
Now he's struggling with his self-esteem and his self-image because of some of that stuff because he's lonelier. But he won't hedge on that. And it's tough for you to say to an 11-year-old, buddy, that type of persecution is going to grow you in Christ-likeness. It just hurts. You're like, is this a blessed kid? You'd look at the kid that has all the friends. That one's blessed. This one over here. But I know Jesus sees it differently. And I just pray, Lord, help him at that age to write this into his story in a way that caused him to grow and not to be crushed. Help him to grow in Christ-likeness. Help him to grow and understand you. And keep his heart focused on the hereafter that one day we're going to live in a perfect community. I live in a perfect community. So as I pray over you today, two things again. Did you draw some comfort today? I hope you did. I hope you were able now to be able to better reconcile those moments where you compare yourself to one of those Beatitudes and say, oh, pastor, I don't get an A plus in that category, but I'm in the class. I'm making progress, but pastor, uh, it's still a work. It's still a war. It's still... And Jesus says, blessed are you because there's a good work that started inside of you. If you see those two tensions, there's a work going on. If there's only one and it's only the voice of the opposite of that beatitude, you're not a citizen of the kingdom. And if you recognize that activity of Jesus inside of you, be comforted because he started a good work in you and he will finish it. I hope you find comfort. But maybe you feel conviction day because you say, Pastor, those things are not going on inside of me. And I think it's more evidence that I'm not ready to enter God's kingdom. But I want to be. I want to enter his kingdom more than anything. But I recognize more it's an internal thing. It's not external stuff. It's, my heart has to change. Jesus needs to live inside of me through his spirit. He has to be the one to make me into these things because I can't make myself into those things. All my trying it, it's acting, it's externals, but it's not that real change of desire, change of heart that Jesus is talking about, and I want that. Well, then blessed are you because you've recognized you're poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you because you're mourning and grieving over the condition of your soul that it's not right with God. You will be comforted. Blessed are you because you're meek and you're coming to the Lord. And he's going to forgive you and instill you with a strength and a tenacity and open up for you a new hunger and thirst for righteousness. If, if, if you will put your trust in him right now. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? Worship team, will you come? Are you ready to enter God's kingdom? I pray you are. I pray you are. I pray you've thought about this today. I pray you've, you've let these things challenge your heart. I pray that you've compared yourself to what Jesus says is normal, standard, operating, thinking, and behaving for Christians. Not that it's perfect, but that there is motion, that there is activity, that there are some things that you know. There's things that you're aware of in ever-increasing uh, strength and awareness in your own life. There's some relationships that you have that are different now. And as a result of those things, there is progress in Christ-likeness that's going on in your life. That you admit simultaneously, I am not all the way there yet, but I am in the process. I'm on the journey. Jesus is moving. The good work has started. It started at salvation. It's operating today. Please find some encouragement and comfort in that. If, on the other hand, you recognize that activity is not taking place in your heart of hearts, the reason why is because at this moment you are not saved. You've not confessed your belief in Jesus. You've not asked him to save you. You've not repented from your sins. You've not acknowledged Jesus as the Lord. You've not surrendered to him. He doesn't live inside of you, but that can change in one moment. He has done all the work. He just invites you. He invites you 
to surrender to him, to put your belief in him, to put your faith in him. You can do that right now. If you believe you need to be saved, believe Jesus can save you and he will save you. And you are ready to step away from the control panel of your life and invite Jesus to sit in its place. That's all you have to bring to the Lord today. Just confess those things to him right now. Use your word. Tell him that. Tell him those things. Jesus, I am ready to be saved. I have to be saved because I'm sinful and broken. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't like living this way. And so I meekly come to you. I've sinned. Please forgive me. I step away from the control room of my life and I invite you to be my leader. You're the Lord. I acknowledge that. And I bow my knee to you. Holy Spirit, live in me. Change me. Breathe new life into me. Make good fruit grow from my life. I receive all of the promises you've offered today. I grab hold of them for my hope, for my present and my future. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.